Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would open our minds to your scriptures, open our hearts to your Holy Spirit. Father, change us, help us to understand and love your word, understand and love you more, and be changed by you. Father, I ask for your help that you would sustain me and give me clarity of thought. Help me to say what is true and helpful only. Help me to glorify Jesus and encourage your people. And I pray that as we go, uh, you would work through us to advance your kingdom and glorify your name in all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, diving right into the text. Jesus says to his original audience and to us, don't be anxious. Your translation might say, don't worry. Same thing. He doesn't say, as they're looking at uh, food and drink and clothing, he does not say, don't work. He says, he, he, he does not say, don't plan or prepare for the future. He says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fear the possibility of not having what you need. Jesus wants us, and the Bible calls us to work and plan and prepare He wants us to steward what God has entrusted to us as we're able for His glory and for the good of others. But as we work and as we plan and as we prepare and steward, Jesus commands us to not be anxious. And then He gives reason after reason for why we shouldn't be anxious. Now, uh, I have a disclaimer this morning that I mentioned briefly yesterday, excuse me, last week, it's been a long week. This is not intended to heap up guilt on those who experience some type of clinical anxiety. I mentioned this last week. Years ago, I heard an incredibly helpful talk by Ed Welch, who is uh, with the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, Foundation. pastor, scholar, uh, wonderful teacher. His main point in that talk was that as Christians, when we counsel and disciple one another and others, we need to think not only in terms of moral categories of sin and righteousness. Those are essential categories of sin and righteousness that we need to have in our mind, sin, sin and obedience, but also we need to think in terms and categories of natural strengths and weaknesses. Because we are embodied spirits and the effects of the fall from sin impact us not just morally producing sin, but also physically producing weakness. We're embodied spirits, so the fallout from sin, the curse of God in the world, generally, as a result of sin, they impact us not just morally producing more sin, but also physically producing weakness. For example, so he he gave this example of this man that he had been counseling for some time who um, suffered from anxiety that was just devastating, and and it manifested for him in sudden panic attacks. And he was a Christian, he loved the Lord, he trusted Jesus, uh, he had prayed for healing, and the counselor was saying, okay, so, so tell me, what does this look like for you? He's like, well, like the other week, I was out to dinner with my wife and some friends, and everything was fine, and nothing triggered it to my knowledge, but just suddenly, my, my body 
reacted as though I were in this fight-or-flight scenario, and I was just gripped with terror and fear. And I, I, he said, what did you do? He said, I ran out into the parking lot. I had to get out, and I just cried out to Jesus. I said, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And that's all I could do in, until it passed. And he talked a lot more, and he made sure, and he really thought through, and he said, so you're a Christian. You trust Jesus. You, 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 you love Him. You've prayed for healing. Um, and yet, sometimes your body just works against you and wrongly triggers this fight, flight or fight response that, that causes you to feel terror, and, and there's not uh, a stimulus for it. And when that happens, is, is, is that how you normally react? He said, yeah, all the time. I just, I just cry out to Jesus to help me. He said, brother, when I am faced with fear, sometimes crying out to Jesus is the last thing I do because my instinct is to work the problem to figure, okay, I, I, I can get myself out of the situation, I can analyze, I can strategize, I can plan, I can, I, I, I. And he said, I, I know you're burdened down, because this, this man was like, I'm such a failure as a Christian, I'm such a disappointment as a Christian, if I was a really good Christian, I wouldn't be experiencing this. He said, no, you, at least in this way, you're more spiritually mature than I am. He said, this is not a moral problem primarily, it's a physical weakness primarily. Now, we still need to speak the truth of the gospel into it, but we need to look at what's wrong with your body and not just your soul. Mental health and mental illness are real things. The effects of the fall in this world are real. Because of the curse of God on sin in the world, all people, all people suffer in this life, and all people will eventually die if Jesus doesn't come back first. In Psalm 103, David says, God is compassionate to us, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. David says, He knows our natural weaknesses, and He cares. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He didn't say rebuke the faint-hearted for being faint-hearted. He said, encourage them. He didn't say, chastise the weak for being weak. He didn't say, tell the weak to snap out of it already because we've all got problems. He said, to help the weak. All of our bodies are affected in various ways by the fallout from sin in the world. If it's your eyes and you have astigmatism like me, we would never rebuke you for needing to wear glasses. Apart from a miraculous healing, which God can do, and it's not wrong to pray for that. Apart from a miraculous healing, we would say, put your hope in Jesus ultimately and wear glasses. If it's your legs and you have mobility challenges, we would never chastise you for needing a wheelchair. We'd say, put your hope ultimately in Jesus and use the wheelchair. In the same way, if your brain, which is part of your body, is impacted by the brokenness of the world, we don't look down on you for, if needed, getting appropriate treatment. We'd say, put your trust ultimately in Jesus, live in encouraging gospel community, don't do this alone, and if needed, in this broken world, receive treatment. That is not necessarily evidence of a lack of faith. But whatever kind of anxiety you experience, that extraordinary level or a more ordinary level that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, Jesus speaks compassionately to you in Matthew chapter 6. 
We all need encouragement and help to grow in how we respond to our anxieties. For Jesus' audience, the main issue causing anxiety was basic survival. Will we have enough food and drink and clothing? For us today, the issue is usually different. For you, it may be your family or your health or your job. Your main worry may be the state of our culture or political uncertainty. But underneath all these issues is the same question. When Jesus' audience worried, they were asking the same question we're asking when we worry. Are we going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Will we have what we need for our fundamental well-being? Are we going to make it through this? To that question, Jesus lovingly says, don't worry. And he does not just command it and say, I told you not to worry, so stop. Snap out of it. Instead, he piles up all these reasons for us, all these truths like spiritual antitoxins for our worries. Jesus wants you to be encouraged to take heart, the Bible says, that whatever your experience with anxiety and worry has been so far, it does not have to stay that way. It can get better. I hear people say, well, I'm just a worrier. That's just who I am. That's not who you are. That's something you struggle with, and maybe you need to be encouraged to fight against it more with these truths that Jesus gives us. God cares about your worry. He's sympathetic, and yet He calls you to greater degrees of trust. You can see that in the way that he gives all these reasons not to be anxious. He expects that to help. He intends for these truths to help stir up faith and drive away worry. He gives at least nine reasons in this text. That's a lot of reasons. We're not going to look at all of those. I whittled it all the way down to six. We'll briefly look at six of them, not quite in the order that they appear in the text, and then we'll have some application as, as we close. So here we go. Number one, in the order that I'm taking them, Jesus says, God knows how to take care of His children. God knows how to take care of His children. Verse 31, as He's sort of concluding and restating His main idea in the section, He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Why? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. At this point in history, God had primarily revealed Himself to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And for the most part, the Gentiles, those who were outside of Israel, did not believe in the one true God. They didn't know Him. They didn't trust Him. So Jesus is talking about their unbelief, not their ethnic status, but their belief status. They had their own false gods that they worshipped, but of course, false gods can't provide for anybody. Idols have to be carried around by their worshipers. Only the true and living God actually can carry and provide for His people. So the Gentiles and other writings point to this outside the Bible. Inten the Gentiles intensely sought after their basic necessities because their gods were helpless to provide for them. But by contrast, Jesus says to those who are following Him, looking to Him to be their Messiah, He says, do not be anxious about your food and drink and clothing, for the unbelieving Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
He says they're anxious about whether their needs will be met because they don't know God, but my people do. And not just as a king, but as a father. Those who receive Jesus by simple faith have the eternal God of the universe as their father. He knows everything. Your heavenly father knows what you need. So don't worry, Jesus says, because God knows how to take care of his children. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 25, God won't abandon his children. God won't abandon his children. Tragically, that happens on earth sometimes. It will never happen with God. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What's the logic there? Why are we naturally anxious about food? Obviously, simply because we need that to sustain our lives. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat. He says, we, we know we need food to sustain our lives. Why are we naturally anxious about clothing in a subsistence culture? Because we need it to cover and protect our bodies from the elements. But Jesus says, which is the greater gift? Food or life itself? Life itself is a greater gift from God. Which is the greater gift? Clothing or the body itself? The body is the greater gift. And who gave you your life? Who gave you your body? God did. You did not create your own life or your own body. They are gifts to you from God. And if you now know God by faith in Jesus as your heavenly Father, the one who gave you the greater gift of life itself, you can trust Him to give you the lesser gift of food and clothing or whatever it is you're worried about. Are we going to get what we need? God is a good Father. He, if He started you on this journey by creating your life and creating your body, doing that greater work, you can trust Him to give you what you need to sustain your life and body to sustain your well-being. God is a good father. He never abandons his children. He's not going to start and then stop caring for you. Now, that raises questions, right? Like, what about believers who do lack their daily food and clothing because of drought or war or persecution? We see that happen in the Old Testament and the New. Hang on, we'll, we'll get there. But for now, Jesus says, you're going to be okay. God knows how to take care of his children, and God does not abandon his children. Third, Jesus says, God treasures his children. God treasures his children. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So birds don't farm, but your Father feeds them. He provides for them. I love that picture of like the Almighty God in heaven just feeding the birds. He cares for His creation. And, God, and, and Jesus is saying, doesn't God value His kids more than birds? Of course. He loves you. God values you. God treasures you. You have, your life has significance to God, not because you're so inherently amazing that God is impressed, but because God is so amazing that He overflows in self-giving love toward His people. 
The Bible says he's been overflowing in this love toward his people from before the foundation of the world. God loves and cares for his creation. How much more does he treasure and provide for his children? Fourth, Jesus says, God is in control. God is in control. No matter what your anxieties tell you, it's true. Matthew 6.27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Does worry extend your life at all? No. Why is that a comforting argument, Jesus? Because you're not in control, but God is. And He has a plan for your life. And this loving Father, this great God who treasures you, we're mortal. We're, we're not going to live in this world, in this life forever. God has a good, appropriate, right plan for your death. And even in death, His plans toward us are always good. David sang in Psalm 139 to God, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! David says, before I was even born, God, you had written down with certainty every single day that I would live in this world. And to David, that is not a depressing thought, but an awesome thought. It moved him to sing and worship God. Why? Because David knew that God loved him. He said, my days are in your hand. I can't control my living and my dying. You can. You're in control of all things, and, I, and you love me. Your hands are the safest place to be, the only safe place to be. So I worship at the thought that you know the duration of my days and the hour of my death because you love me and you take care of me, and I couldn't plan life any better myself. You have plans even for my suffering, even for my death. I trust you with that. It's, I don't want to play God. I don't want to assume that I know everything that's right. You, oh God, you are the wise one. When you read Psalm 139, David is saying, I can't get over the fact that you know me so thoroughly and you love me so lavishly. Charles Quarles, who has one of the best names ever, is a Christian scholar and professor. He, he wrote this about this verse in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Professor Quarles said, since God has determined the duration of each person's life, lack of food will not result in premature death and abundance of food will not prolong life. A person's survival depends on divine sovereignty, not human anxiety. By reminding his audience of the limitations of their power, who among you is able, Jesus reminded them of God's unlimited power in which they are to place their trust. God knows how to care for his children. He won't abandon his children. He treasures his children, and God is in control. So no matter what happens, Jesus says, we don't need to worry. God's heart toward us is good. Fifth, look at verse 28. Jesus says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't make clothing from fabric. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so thus in that way clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, 
oh you of little faith. I think this is where we start to see that Jesus this whole time is talking about more than just earthly food and clothing. Watch what He does here. He compares for us different levels of glorious clothing. Solomon, King Solomon from the Old Testament was in their minds the pinnacle of earthly glory. No king or queen was ever clothed more gloriously than Solomon. But Jesus says, God clothes the grass with more glory than even Solomon had. God clothes them with flowers, these intricate, beautiful things that God Himself makes, that none of our achievements, our toiling and our spearing, could ever, spinning, could ever compare to. And yet, the wildflowers on these hillsides would spring up quickly and be scorched quickly by the sun. What was stunningly glorious, literally for a day sometimes, was fuel for the fire the next day. Jesus says, God designed them that way on purpose, to show you, believers in Him, that He loves to bestow glory on His creation. But if God is willing to clothe the grass in this amazing but momentary glory, won't He much more clothe you, His children? So, I'm a lot of times a visual learner. If you try to represent this visually, like on a graph, I know that's really nerdy, but it helps me. Um, so, you got your axis here and like glory increasing and, and just different things on the graph to compare. You'd have Solomon's glory right here, right? So, bunch of glory. And then the glory of flowers up here. Wait a second. Where is the glory of your earthly clothing compared to Solomon's glory? Way down here right? So that was the point. Your normal clothing, Solomon's clothing, the glory, the clothing of the grass, which is flowers. And then Jesus says, will he not much more than the flowers clothe you? So the glory of the clothing that he says God will provide for you is way up here. This is where Jesus starts, I think, to explicitly transpose this whole song up a key. He's been talking about earthly food and clothing. But now he starts to lift our eyes up to consider heavenly food and clothing. If you belong to Jesus, your heavenly Father is going to give you more glory than the kings of the earth ever dreamed of. So our fifth point from Jesus is that God's children inherit eternal glory. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to have your needs met or not. Why? He says God's children inherit eternal glory. Not momentary, and then the fire burns it up forever. You last forever, and God will clothe you with glory forever. If you're going to be clothed with glory from God forever, then you can trust Him to give you what is best today. So, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Your birth was a gift? Your life is a treasure to God? Are you not more value than that? Your future is ordained by an all-wise God who loves you, and now, he says, your eternity is secure and glorious beyond imagination. So do not worry as though God might not do the right thing for you. Sixth, Jesus says, God gives His kingdom-seeking children what they truly need. Let me say that again. God gives His kingdom-seeking children what they truly need. 
Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. All these things will be added to you. Am I guaranteed a full pantry for the rest of my life? No, biblically you're not. But maybe that's not what you really need. Maybe God knows what you need better. All that you need, all that you need in order to walk by faith, glorify God, rejoice in the Lord, and make it safely home to heaven, your Father will give you. All that you need to walk by faith, glorify God, rejoice in the Lord, and make it safely home to Him, God, your Father, will give you. In Psalm 84, 11, he, uh, it says, no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Talking about the people of God, we've turned our backs on sin, now we trust in Him, and we want to obey Him. We're not perfect, but we repent. No good thing does God withhold from them. We see it in the New Testament. I think about well, we see it in the Apostle Paul, we see it in Christians who are suffering, but I think about what it's like to read Matthew 6 as a Christian in North Korea or Somalia or Pakistan, where you live in a developing country or under an authoritarian state or Jesus says, don't worry about your food. Your Father knows what you need. And you can receive that by faith and say, you're right, Jesus, I trust you. I don't, I don't know the, the mind of God. I don't know the mysteries of God. I'll pray for my needs to be met. But ultimately, in response to this, I will trust that you will meet my true needs according to your riches and glory. And if what I need in this life, according to your infinite wisdom, is to suffer more, I trust you with that. I don't understand. I wish it wasn't like this, but I trust you with it. It's like the song that we're going to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. That song is saying, I trust you with this, written by a man whose, whose wife and children drowned in a, in a uh, ship that went down. He, he wrote, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever happens to me, you've taught me to say it's well with my soul. Not because I love that this happened, but because I trust the goodness of God more than I dislike the pain. Jesus says, more than food and clothing, you need God's kingdom and righteousness. For God's children, His kingdom is our life. His righteousness is our clothing. That's what we want. We want Him. So when life falls apart, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve that bad report from the doctor. It's okay to grieve the brokenness in your family. It's okay, it's right to grieve the bad direction of society and culture. But the Bible says that when we grieve, we grieve as those who have hope. We have confidence in God's unshakable goodness toward us. So we care and we pray and yes, we weep, but also we rest and trust God joyfully even in the midst of the pain. So much of the media that we consume is intentionally designed to make us anxious. News stations need ratings. A lot of social media posters are trying to get maximum shares and outrage sells. Sometimes there's wisdom in taking a break or scaling back from all that so that our souls can focus more on God and rest in God. I'm not trying to 
set out any kind of rule. You know, this is not a legalistic thing. Follow the Spirit. But just consider, is this person profiting off my anxiety? Is, this, is the effect of me continuing to focus this way, is this fueling my faith or fueling worry? Do I need to know this or is it just okay and, and not wrong to know this? What's the, the grid through which this voice is speaking to me? Are they, are they speaking to me from a distinctly Christian perspective? Just that's for free, something to consider. Um, God's going to lead different people in different ways in that. Pastor Tim Keller once said, worry is not believing God will get it right, and bitterness is believing God got it wrong. This is so helpful to me. Worry is not believing God will get it right, and bitterness is believing God got it wrong. So much of the world runs on us being worried and bitter. But Jesus says, here's all these reasons to rest in God's goodness toward you, so don't worry. Tim Keller was later diagnosed with cancer. Uh, He's still alive. Um, People are... Um, interviewing him, what's God teaching you through this? What's life like? As he and his wife have processed and prayed through it, God has given them greater peace and joy than they had ever known before. When he was asked about it, one of the things he said to Christians was, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, and he is, he was, then everything is going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about or afraid of, everything is going to be okay, close quote. Let me say that again. If Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, and he was, then everything ultimately is going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about or afraid of, in God's sovereign goodness, everything is going to be okay. So, what do we do with this? We've got a bunch of don't commands in our passage, and they all say don't be anxious, but what should we do? Not this, but what? Jesus says, as a positive command in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What does that mean? Well, we saw last week that for an unbeliever, it means look to the cross and ask God for His kingdom and righteousness. Ask for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and He'll give it to you. God loves to forgive sin and welcome people into His family. So, what does it mean For believers to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're coming to a close. If nothing else, it means at least pray the way Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. I want you to see that in the text. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness at least means pray the way Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. Leading up to seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, one, don't be like the unbelieving Gentiles. Two, your heavenly Father knows what you need, so three, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Where did we see that flow of thought before in the Sermon on the Mount? Just a few verses earlier. Look back at verse 7. And when you pray, Jesus said, when you bring your anxieties to the Lord, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, the, the unbelievers, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. So there's number one. Number two, For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then three, pray then like this. 
Jesus gave us the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer uh, to teach us how to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness as God's children. It's intentionally parallel. Seek first the kingdom, pray then like this. Look with me at it as we close. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are seven petitions, seven requests in the model prayer. I'm not going to do a deep dive, just a couple of quick observations and we're done. The first one looks like a statement in our translations. Hallowed be your name, like it's, like it's praise. But grammatically in the original, it's actually a request. Same grammatical structure as the ones that follow it. It's not literally hallowed be your name, it's hallow your name. Let your name be hallowed, reverenced, revered as holy. This is the first thing Jesus teaches us to pray here. Let your name be honored and reverenced and treasured among the earth. So the first three petitions are three different ways of praying for God's kingdom. Let your name be reverenced. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth. And then that modifier refers to all three of them in the original on earth as it is in heaven. The way your name is reverenced in heaven, let it be that way on earth. The way your kingdom is in heaven, let it be that way on earth. The way your will is done in heaven, let it be that way on earth. So the same thing from different angles. We want your kingdom, your perfect rule, your reign over us and in all the earth. Now jump down to verse five, excuse me, number five, the petition. And look that the last three petitions are three different ways of praying for God's righteousness. Forgive us. We need your righteousness. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Not primarily talking about protection from bad things happening to us, but the flip side of lead us not into temptation. When you say, don't do this, but do this, you're talking about what what you should do instead of what you shouldn't do, right? They fit together. he's, He's saying, don't lead us into that, but deliver us from that. Don't lead us into the temptation that we're too weak for that would lead us to sin against you, but rather deliver us from the moral evil that we're so prone to. So we're praying for sanctification, praying for righteousness. So again, the same thing from three different angles. We want your righteousness, so please forgive us and guide us and guard us from straying into sin. So the first three are about God's kingdom. The last three are about God's righteousness. And what's that little one in the middle? All these things. Give us this day our daily bread. What you need to live. Give us what we need, God. Give us what we need so that we can live for your kingdom and your righteousness. Give us today whatever is best for us today so that we can live for your glory. The Lord's prayer is amazingly rich. You could do years of sermons on it. There's a lot going on here, but just notice, lastly, that the proportion is intentional. Jesus says, here's a model. He doesn't say pray this, like just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, empty. No, pray like this. Let this shape your prayers. And And then he gives us an example of praying three times as much for God's kingdom as for our earthly needs. Praying three times as much for God's righteousness as for our earthly needs. And the point is not necessarily that we'd pray for our needs less frequently. The point is that we would pray for our earthly needs less frantically and pray for God's kingdom and righteousness much more frequently. What would it look like? What would the effect be in your heart if your prayer life was shaped that way? He's not discouraging you from praying for what you need, but just let 
Let God's kingdom and righteousness fill your prayers even more. That shape of a prayer life would reach back into your heart, I think Jesus is saying, and shape your affections, shape your focus, causing you to love the things of God more and worry about the things of earth less. Prayer is God's ordained means to God's ordained ends. The kingdom is coming, so why pray for it to come? Because He has ordained that the end is going to come through prayer. So keep praying, and in response to your real prayers, Jesus will return at the right time. The kingdom will come, and it will come through our prayers. So let's keep praying for Jesus to return. And when He does, all our sufferings will be transformed into glory, and every moment of it will have been perfectly worth it. So let's rest in God's goodness together. Together, in community, we pray, our Father in heaven. And let's press on to declare the gospel to the world so that as we wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness, we get to see it keep advancing now, one transformed heart at a time. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Hallow your name in all the earth. We want to see your name revered as holy and loved and reverenced. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as perfectly and fully as it's done in heaven. God, do that in us, in our hearts, in our lives. Reign and rule more clearly and more thoroughly over us. We submit ourselves joyfully to you. Lord, give us what we need. You know what we need. You know what we need. We entrust ourselves to you. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from sin. Lord, we praise you, and we ask that you would change us, encourage us, fill us with peace, that your kingdom and righteousness are sure, and that if we have life in the kingdom and are clothed in your righteousness, then we have everything that we need. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you, and we worship you now through the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name. Well, in your seat when you came in, you've got this little celebration of the gospel that we love to take together every week. There are two seals on top. One opens a wafer of bread that represents Christ's body. The second seal opens a cup of juice representing his blood. And the Bible says that this is for Christians. We, we respectfully ask if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't come to him, that you please refrain from taking this. But if you're a Christian, you don't have to be a member of this church. We welcome you to, to take it with us. And as we take it, we're saying our souls run on Jesus and faith in him, just like our bodies need food to sustain us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Amen. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We remember you. Receive our praise through song now. In your precious name we pray. Amen. 
You can take time to reflect and do business with God and pray. You can take time to go to one another and repent and reconcile if you need. But whenever you're ready, let's stand and worship our God and King together.